Four o'clock on Tuesday means two hours of current affairs with Joan Bartlett on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. And today we look to Brazil presidential elections next Tuesday with journalist and writer Ray Fuentes. And then to Africa, specifically Zimbabwe. Human rights activist Peter Murphy will be talking about his impressions of the struggle there for the people in tough times. But Wayne Wadsworth is doing his bit to green the desert in South Australia. Bob Phelps is fighting the good fight against genetic engineering. Activist Vicky John with concerns about Sophia flooding at the Panguna mine site on Bogleville. But Mr Kevin Healy is here in Melbourne surveying all in his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when beginner's luck was highlighted by the Reserve Profits Bank becoming the Reserve Losses Bank as a $44 billion paper loss on its fixed income holdings and a bond-buying program to prop up the economy during the pandemic meant it won't be able to pay the government a dividend until at least the 2030s. And how's this highlight beginner's luck? Well, we know the Caring Business Class Party and the Caring Business Class it represents and some of Trumluwazi's filthiest rich are the filthy rich drool at the sight of trillions of industry super funds workers' money in the hands of workers' organisations. Shame, the last place they should be on which they outperform the traditional banks and financial institutions whom the aforementioned know should have all that lovely, lovely money. Knowing the outperforming industry funds are clearly simply enjoying the phenomena that is beginner's luck. Year after year, year after beginner's luck year, and that thus avoids the most awful thought of all. If it isn't beginner's luck, then would the Reserve Losses Bank be better off, be more likely to return to the Reserve Profits Bank if, dare we say it, workers and not great financial entrepreneurs were on the board? perish the thought. They remind us there was one workers' representative on the board back in the nuclear hawk world's greatest worst treasure of Paul days, but then they tell us it was ACTU Secretary Little Billy killed them. So that's not the same thing. Little Billy, who boasted two weeks ago how he negotiated to make workers worse off, how he opposes the better off overall test because it doesn't make workers worse off. So we're not sure he counts. Current big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital, as we know, has asked three capitalist economists to report on whether there are too many capitalist economists on the board. Doesn't that make sense? Then again, putting workers on the board would probably backfire, as they can't help themselves. They have to resort to class envy, as the caring business class party and caring employers continually point out, and they know there are no class differences to be envious of. Yet just this week, the finance sector union is threatening industrial action at the Nabia Money Bank, rejecting a spectacularly generous 5% pay rise on the selfish argument that it does not keep up with inflation. Ignoring the Reserve Losses Bank's supremo fill low pay for use patriotic argument that workers must accept wage cuts. And a 5% increase is not a wage cut anyway. Well, well not a real wage cut, or not much of one. And here's where the class envy bit comes in. 
the ungrateful union described the 5% as paltry compared to the nab your money CEO Ross McSpewan on the workers' reasonable 130% pay increase to $5.8 million. Can't the union see the illogic of its argument? Ross is just one person. The wage slaves, or sorry, workers, are thousands, so their 5% in total probably exceeds Ross's 130% or, or near enough to it. It gets worse. There's these unthankful trainees at Hamburger Chain grilled the workers, which is generous enough to train young people with the trainees receiving a smaller wage per hour than non-trainee workers, an extraordinarily generous $14.95 an hour, before they emerge with their Hamburger Uni qualifications, a one-year apprenticeship, so to speak, with young workers complaining that after two or three years they're still struggling to survive on the trainee wage and haven't received a certificate. And the ingratitude goes deeper. They're also complaining that grilled the workers happily accepted 16.6 million in corporate welfare from the previous government to offer such generous conditions. Which, and we find this hard to believe, the usual suspect's claim was taking advantage of low-paid workers. And okay, okay, two, three years and still not qualified, but it's a complicated business. It takes years to learn how to toss a lump of salt and fat into a sugar-laden bun. It's an art. In the not-so-funny department, allowing for the broken promises by the US of NATO, which form a backdrop to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the special military operation, as Putin euphemistically describes war, describes train killing, nonetheless we are dealing with a megalomaniac with his back to the wall and threatening nuclear retaliation. Raise this just to iterate the obvious. The only way to avoid a nuclear disaster is to ensure there are no nuclear weapons, that nobody has them. That removes all danger. We know that in the privatisation of public assets that turn over a neat little profit, allowing the community to enjoy the benefits of the efficient hand of the private sector and the low, low prices from which we all benefit that are a big selling point. Governments take the poor private entrepreneurs to the proverbial cleaners, that the public purse makes massive gains at the expense of the private sector. Like poor Trevor St. Baker the Earth and his partner Brian Fannery the Flames, described as coal investors, obviously people deeply concerned about the environment and the frying of the planet. Trevor and Brian in 2015 paid the New South Wales government a whopping $1 million for the Bales Point coal-fired power station. Talk about a rip-off, a million dollars. The government laughing all the way too. The extent of the rip-off revealed two years later when the plant was valued as a mere $722 million, an insignificant $721 million capital gain. Poor Trev, poor Brian. And the massive $1 million the government ripped off the two innocents and pocketed was probably used for important public benefits like corporate welfare subsidies to the coal and fossil industries. And now poor Trev and poor Brian are flogging Vales Point to a check company for, quote, several hundred million dollars, all of which shows the huge social benefits of privatisation. 
Another great filthiest rich, the US of global battery entrepreneur Kit Masters, real name, advised us it would be hard for Trublawazi to make the leap from mining key ingredients to making batteries for electric vehicles. You'll be far better off. He showed how much he cares for us by supplying us with the lithium and other ingredients and then buying the batteries of us. See? Caring only for others, like all great corporations. As there was some fleeting celebration this week as Origin Fossil Polluter announced it was abandoning its Beetaloo Basin fracking proposal, which has been subject to a little bit of opposition from anti-Trublewasi environmentalists and indigenous people, one of whom, Johnny Wilson of the Nerdalinji Native Title Aboriginal Corporation, declaring, and how's this for opposing progress, declaring, fracking is not what we want. The government should give up backing the industry with taxpayers' money and invest in health, education and clean energy from the sun because that's what will keep our future strong. Hasn't he listened to the gas industry telling us it is part of clean energy and intends to be part of clean energy for decades? What commendable concern. Why, there's an ad that refers to renewable gas and as for government corporate welfare, well... Beetaloo Basin is part of the government's gas-led recovery and a struggling energy behemoth like Origin Fossil Energy needed every dollar of the millions it received from the public purse from former big supremo Scuttlebin Morlashson, a.k.a. Scummo's gas-led recovery to explore the basin. We presume it will pay all that back as it flogs the lease and that's where the fleeting celebrations bit comes in. Origin Fossil has simply flogged it to another caring corporate Tambaran Resources which says it has all the support it needs to proceed with fracking the environment, including, it says, support from indigenous groups. Can't we get things wrong? We could have sworn Johnny Wilson's comments were opposed to the fracking, but no. Oh, Tambourine did say it has good relationships with the Northern Territory Socialist Government, which supports the fracking. So for those anti-progress, anti-Trublewasi protesters, the celebrations are fleeting. The fight goes on. Wonder who'll extract the more from government coffers now, the local indigenous people or the non-local corporate invader? No prizes for the answer. Speaking of, what luck for that up co- that copper up um, X-train killer up in the Northern Territory acquitted of murdering a young black man whose inquest is currently being conducted. What luck that he just happened in the Northern Territory to get an all-white jury and that his texts were not admitted at trial. Texts the coroner ruled against his counsel's opposition that they could be made public with the most vile racist comments imaginable and how he loves bashing and hurting people. They may have made a bit of a difference in the murder trial, even with an all-white jury, but, well, it's not like there are a lot of Indigenous people in the Northern Territory. Indeed, despite that, the inquest evidence suggests quitted coppers' views are endemic in the force. Well, they have such constant contact with them, arresting, locking up, bashing, killing, protecting the community. And as Western Trublewasi continues to lock up young Aboriginal people long after their sentences for minor, minor crimes have been served because they're deemed to be a threat, 
jailed for offences arising from poverty, the AFL was celebrating grand final week by revealing yet another report showing the caring treatment Indigenous players receive. And no problems here, no need to worry, because the league keeps telling us it is inclusive and cares for its Indigenous players. I'm sure we'd agree among the most exciting players in the game, and it will go on telling us how much it cares, and as report after report and incident after incident recur, it will go on telling us, and I'm sure if we asked our regular football commentator or expert commentator Michelle to give us her in-depth opinion of all this, she would inform us, very interesting, Kevin making it difficult to comprehend why on a day of national mourning for a nonagenarian in Her Most Gracious Majesty's, or these days, His Most Gracious Majesty's home country, these beneficiaries of colonialism would take to the streets, condemning the invaders. What about thank you for bringing us civilization, for contributing so caringly to our environment and ecology, our country, our Mother Earth? Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy, and you can hear more of Kevin tomorrow morning on City Limits here at 3CR at 9am. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Next Tuesday, the 4th of October, in what has been described as Brazil's most important presidential election in decades, the former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, faces the incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, and there have been fears expressed that if he loses, Bolsonaro might try to stay in power with possibly the help of the Brazilian military. Today we look back at the recent past, the election process and the consequences of a left or a right victory. And to do that, I'm joined by activist, author and journalist Fred Fuentes. Fred, I'd like to begin with the 2018 election at which Bolsonaro came to power. This victory, it is argued, was only possible due to the fact that earlier that year Lula was jailed on trumped up charges and he would not have been able to contest this election but for the fact that his conviction was annulled last year. And there's a story there, isn't there, concerning the judge who convicted him, Judge Sergio Moro, and in 2019 that investigation showed that he was actually in connection with the prosecutors, was training them, telling them what to do to keep their Workers' Party out of power. And there's also a claim that a lie in the police investigation and a lie in the indictment by the Office of the Attorney-General made sure that he was convicted. Can you tell that story? The 2018 elections were very hotly disputed. The polls at the time had as the favourite Lula da Silva, uh, the Workers' Party candidate and who had been a previous president. And the issue was that there had been a long-running sort of investigation into corruption uh, in the PT government, uh, both when Lula was previously president and then his sort of pre- his predecessor, uh, the person who followed him, which was Dilma Rousseff. 
uh, were involved in alleged uh, corruption scandals. Whilst nothing was actually found to convict either of the two, Dilma was removed from the presidency two years before her mandate was to finish, so already leading into the elections, we had a, a, a non-elected transitional government in power. And you had the case that was put against Lula, which, of course, was a highly politicised case. I mean, it's so politicised that, in, in actual fact, the judge who was presiding over the case, um, the original case, ended up being a minister in the Bolsonaro government after the election. So we see the, the very close links that there were there between the judiciary and and sections of the political class who operated to ensure that Lula wouldn't be able to run because of, of those cases. Now, in the end, on appeal, all, all, the, all the charges were dropped against Lula, but he was still unable by that time the elections had already happened. So yeah, that, that really set the framework for how Bolsonaro was, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, even though he'd been in parliament for 30 years, was a still generally un, little unknown, presented himself as an outsider. Um, but with uh, a very so strong leaning towards the far right uh, politically, was able to win those elections. Well, with Lula out of the way, not long before the election was held, he wins. Can we look back on the consequences of the last four years for the majority of the people of Brazil? It's been absolute disaster. Brazil's had certainly one of the worst handling of the COVID pandemic, uh, where you had a, essentially a, a COVID denier uh, in power with, with Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, stepped up destruction of the Amazon rainforest under Bolsonaro. Uh, we've seen a rise in political violence, rise in violence against minority groups in Brazil. So um, we've just seen also economic collapse as well, part of the, the sort of general pressures that are affecting the world economy. So it's been an absolute disaster. So, so much so that Bolsonaro is not really running a campaign a re-election campaign on the basis of what he's been able to achieve, uh, but rather wanting to run a, a few campaign of trying to say that the only thing stopping Brazil going back to the, you know, what he calls the, the, the dark days of, of the PT government of, of the, the alleged corruption scandals, uh, the only way to stop that happening is to vote vote for him. So yeah, even that's a, in a certain level an acknowledgement that um, there's not a lot that actually Bolsonaro can sell um, from his four years in power so far. Can you talk a bit more about the impact on the Amazon of Bolsonaro and also the trade union movement, the indigenous peoples? Yeah, no, we've seen... So in regards to the Amazon, you know, the, Bolsonaro's been pretty open in terms of his um, support for, for agribusiness, his opposition to fighting climate change. So it really has been a kind of free-for-all uh, under the Bolsonaro government. We've seen that not just in terms of the increasing areas been lost uh, to deforestation, but also the increased violence in those communities. We've certainly seen an uptick in the number of community activists, indigenous activists, environmental activists. In fact, you know, some very well-known cases just in, in recent months that sort of sparked international outcry. It's sort of a small indication of the sort of the high level of violence that's now occurring in the countryside. Not that it didn't exist before Bolsonaro, but it's, it's certainly stepped up. And what this has meant is that a lot of the the movements you mentioned um, have been very much on the defensive in the last four years, very much uh, fighting to repel uh, attacks coming from the Bolsonaro government, from paramilitary uh, violence, from you know violence unleashed by large and large landowners in in the countryside. Uh, so there've been a lot of them, therefore, been very much uh, falling in, you know, in support of the the PT's candidature for these elections. 
because uh, they absolutely see these elections as an opportunity to, to get rid of Bolsonaro and feel that, that the best way to do that is, is to support a, a Lula, uh, Lula presidency. After that, there have also been sections of those movements that have seen the importance of not just campaigning for Lula, but also campaigning on the streets to actually provide a, a positive alternative uh, to Bolsonaro. Very much, there's a strong feeling that Lula will win above anything else because of you know how much hatred there is to Bolsonaro and because of the, the, what we talked about, the, the disaster of his, his four years in government. But Lula, you know, the candidate, his candidature doesn't perhaps inspire much hope of real change occurring in Brazil. There's certainly been some movements that you know been urging the need to continue on the streets to also present that, that alternative. But others in particular say the trade unions are much more closely linked with the Workers' Party have very much been hesitant to, to go onto the streets, which has largely left that to, to supporters of Bolsonaro uh, to be out there protesting um, and, as I said, in some cases uh, using violence against other movements. Nearly three-quarters of a million people died of COVID. Were they all in certain areas of Brazil or was it spread all over the country? It was pretty much spread all over the country. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, 100% uniform uh, because obviously uh, Brazil has its governorships and it, it, there are different political parties in power at, at, the, at the level of the governorships in, in each of the states. So some states were perhaps a bit better prepared or, or actually took some proactive steps to try to curb the, the rise of, of COVID. But it was pretty widespread all, all, all across the country. You know, and the government itself was very keen on ensuring that that's happening. And in fact, it's, uh, you know, it does, it's one of the things it does claim to boast in, in its election campaign as having been a success story. Of course, the, the figure that you just said about the death toll means that for, for most people it's a very, very different story um, as to what happened under, under Bolsonaro and COVID. How did he manage the economy under COVID? So his whole premise was to try and just keep the economy uh, open right through the pandemic, um, but the reality was it, it just wasn't wasn't sustainable. The amount of illnesses, then of course you know in the end some some measures had to be taken, or certainly at, perhaps at the state level. So the reality is that you know, Brazil's economy has been far from a, a success story, and, and quite the opposite. You know that, as I said, that that's in a context of a of a global economic slump as well. So Brazil's not immune or not, not the only country in the world that's suffered these economic issues. But uh, certainly in, in Brazil, there's been very little in terms of policies being acted by the Bolsonaro government to protect people from the, the worst ravages of that economic crisis. Would you say that Bolsonaro's government sort of chose all the, the minority groups to challenge, to fight against during that four years when you're thinking of the gay, gay rights, to thinking about the Afro-American people living in Brazil, the people who who really needed support, but did he challenge those? He's a um, big part of his ideology, um, and what actually makes Bolsonaro so so dangerous is his constant targeting of minority groups, the LGBTI community, the the, the, the black community uh, in in Brazil, so much so that his idea is you know goes beyond just using it just to stir up sort of culture wars or, or anything like that, but you know he he presents an image where actually it's these minorities, where power, the people in power are these minority groups and that therefore we need to build a political movement against these sectors of society who are viewed to be the ones that are causing the problems in, in society. So really what he's, what he's sought to do and in a certain way managed to do is create a, a street movement uh, of people who very much strongly believe that, you know, that it's the left that's in power, that it's, it's, it's women that are in power and that it's, you know, ordinary 
ordinary poor working class men who are the ones that have been left out. So that's a, been a huge part of, of his four years, and that will certainly be, that's a big part of what he's attempting to mobilise in this campaign, where he's very clearly sort of stated, you know, used all sorts of uh, misogynist uh, sort of speech in an attempt to actually not just uh, woo his voters, but actually solidify them for the vote and to, to, to get out there and, and campaign on these issues. Heading up to the elections, he's saying oh, he's alleging electoral fraud. Is there any truth in that? No, he's very much just sort of tra- taken it out of like a sort of from Trump's playbook. Um, you know, Trump sort of basically did the same thing in the lead up to his elections. And so he's trying to s- sow doubt in the elections uh, and its results. Uh, you know, I think he hopes that he might be able to maybe perhaps through that process create a bit of institutional turbulence, that he might be able to, um, you know, rally his side, come out and, and protest and, and to vote, you know, so I think perhaps creating some, um, sowing some confusion in the, in the more general public about the, the voting that will happen on, on the day. But no, there's been no, he, well, he, certainly Bolsonaro has presented no evidence and it's, you know, the same electoral system that Brazil has used for quite a long time, which, well, like almost every other electoral system in the world, is, is not perfect. Um, certainly never been, you know, any, anyone uh, previously questioning the legitimacy of the results tabulated by the, by the, the electoral council there in Brazil. How significant was Bolsonaro's friendship with Trump over those years? I think where it was important is, is that arguably, you know, if you wanted to, I suppose perhaps you could add Boris Johnson, but uh, as a third, but as a third trio, but very much internationally, the fact that you had Trump in power in the United States, you know, biggest economy in the world, and you also had in, in Brazil, in the largest country in South America and you know, very large country in global terms. Uh, you also had a, some of the same political ideology, ideology in power. I think what you had was a real strengthening of that sort of um, radical right pole of politics um, at a global level. I think that's really where the importance between the, the two came in. I mean, there wasn't you know, a great deal of, of change that happened. Well, obviously there was a big change compared to what the Workers' Party had previously done in terms of a, a policy orientated much more towards uh, South America under under Lula and, and Dilma now became a policy much more directed towards the US and the Bolsonaro. But that that would have happened whether Trump was in power or not. And that's been Bolsonaro's vision for for Brazil's economy of subordinate subordinate to the needs of of the United States economy. Uh, but I think, as I said, that the real importance was in that sort of uh, international alliance that was constructed on the basis of of these sort of far right politicians in in power in very large and, and important countries. When you're looking at Lula's platform and his ideology and you think of the the recent victories of other countries in South America where does Lula stand? Well I think it's very clear that very few are expecting anything but a very modest and moderate uh, Lula government Um, certainly not been proposing anything um, radical in terms of policies on his election platform in fact very much uh, you know you could argue that he's been trying to downplay uh, too much of the policy issues and, and just seeking to run a, an anti-Bolsonaro a campaign just to coalesce the, the largest possible alliance, including from voters who, you know, but would probably not generally consider voting for the for the Workers' Party, but in the context of wanting to see the back of Bolsonaro, we'll see that voting for Lula is, is the best option in, in these elections to secure that victory. So I think in, in that context, you know, Lula's very much been seeking to woo the more, you know, more generally defined as the centre of politics and his policy directions have been in that way. And I think that's what will happen if we see a Lula government. It's unlikely to see uh, any, any dramatic left-wing shift 
uh, under Lula. But, of course, it will be a, a dramatic change from what Bolsonaro had been doing. And I think, certainly, as I mentioned, that one of those key differences has been the foreign relations and the approach towards the region as, it was, as opposed to the approach towards the United States. But the Workers' Party need other left parties to work with them if they get into government, is that right? That will be almost certain. I mean, the, well, the Workers' Party, whilst they were president, uh, never, never had a parliamentary majority, uh, so they've always had to construct alliances with other parties, uh, both to the left but also to, to their right, and, uh, and those alliances have, have shifted over time. So there will, there will absolutely be, yeah, yeah, need to work out uh, what sort of parliamentary, uh, what sort of alliances will be required in parliament uh, in order to ensure that, you know, some kind of majority in that parliament. And then, of course, after that, every bill will have to be discussed bill by bill with, with the different parties in the alliance. But then following from that, there will be a need to construct a, a cabinet that takes into consideration all those different political forces um, and where they, you know, usually will be seeking ministries in, in that PT in that PT government uh, should rule the win. I'm not sure about the exact figure, but it's certainly the, the, the church has played an important role, the evangelical churches, and it's certainly been a, a particular area that Bolsonaro has tried to word. I mean, in particular, you know, he's been very open about his religious beliefs. So there's been a real real attempt to sort of uh, mobilise that section. And that's, you know, I wouldn't want to exaggerate it. You know, I, I think what we're probably looking at is, you know, maybe 10, 15% of the population is in terms of... Uh, yeah, what would you call a more politicised element of that evangelical movement? Because of course, there's other evangelical churches, but they're, they're, they're less involved in, in politics. But um, you know, I think that certainly the Bolsonaro has, has been targeting that. Um, but I, I don't know if that will be the in and of itself the, the defining feature. I think what what will be in some ways the defining feature, and what whilst all the polls indicate a rule of victory is the most likely outcome, what what can't be ruled out is is a surprise vote for Bolsonaro. Is is that in these elections, you have this sort of weird dichotomy where, on the one hand, even though Bolsonaro is in power, he's still seen by many as the, the sort of outsider candidate challenging the status quo, whereas the PT, even though it hasn't been in power, uh, often uh, is viewed as an establishment party because it was in power for, for quite a number of years, um, six, 16 years in, in power, and because it very much today does sort of present itself as, as a traditional party in, in these elections. They so have this weird dynamic, and what Bolsonaro is hoping to capture is that sort of big discontent that continues to exist, not just in Brazil, but in, you know, in many countries around the world, sort of general disgust towards the, the political class and see if he can uh, seek to mobilise that to get a surprise victory, which is the kind of thing that the, the far right have done, even though they weren't successful, they did quite well both in the Chilean elections and in the Colombian elections, where the radical right candidates were able to firstly surpass the support that the traditional right uh, parties had, uh, to get into the second round, uh, and then do a fair bit better than they were expected by sort of mobilising a bit of that sort of anti-political vote um, in, in that second round of, of, of the presidential elections in Chile and Colombia. I think Bolsonaro will be hoping that if he can at least get into the second round, um, that perhaps he will be able to frame the, the electoral dispute uh, in, in that manner and see how much of a, a vote he can get. There is a fear that if Bolsonaro loses, he could call on the military... Is that a distinct possibility or is that just a threat? I think it's certainly more a threat than a, than a distinct possibility. I'd, you know, it's certainly not something that could be ruled out. But I, I, I think that the biggest factor why it makes it you know, highly unlikely is that even though the military would, you know, I know large sections of the military will be voting for Bolsonaro and would certainly prefer him to be in power, 
they don't really see that their sort of weight in the institutions, that their uh, sort of weight in politics, that their influence over the, the next government will necessarily be greatly diminished by a Lula government. And that is, Lula's not threatening to you know, dramatically change the status quo when it comes to the, to the military. So I think in that regard, you know, the military would have a lot more to lose than it would have to gain by taking such a you know, drastic step as to, to implement a coup. So as I said, I, I think it's, at the moment it's more as a threat. You know, it's more as part of just creating that, that generalised sort of uh, turbulence, that generalised sort of uncertainty. Um, and seeking to to sort of make political gains out of that, I think that's you know where, where we can sort of position these sort of calls for for military coups, whether whether directly from Bolsonaro or generally being more from his his supporters who have sort of raised that sort of possibility. Well, on the likelihood or not that Lula wins, what will his relations be with the neighbouring countries in South America? I think it's very much likely to see a return to the kind of role that Brazil played previously. I think there'll be a, and you know, certainly Brazil will understand, uh, Lula government will, will see the, the necessity, the need to refocus Brazil on the region, uh, both in terms of increasing its relations with, with the governments, but also playing a bigger role in the region. That's certainly something that Brazil did under Lula, uh, for, you know, which, which had its, its positives and negatives in terms of how that played out in, in, in relations with other, with other countries. But it's certainly, you know, Brazil's participation in projects such as the Union of South American Nations, or it's raising the idea of the Bank of the South. It, you know, it, its participation was crucial to to really making those bodies uh, have any real weight. You know, it's hard to have Latin America or South American integration that excludes the, by far the biggest country in the region. And Bolsonaro pretty much uh, you know, turned his back on all of those processes. I, I, you know, I think we'll very much see that reopening of those processes with a Lula government, even if that may not be a, its immediate pri- a priority. And the United States? I don't feel like the United States necessarily feels that it has a huge amount to lose uh, with Lula. And I think actually a Biden presidency uh, probably prefers not to have to deal with a Bolsonaro government. They have its own preferred candidate that's not Lula, but that, you know, it, it can't, it, 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 you know, in these elections, it, the, 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 the two options are Lula and, and Bolsonaro. And I think the US wouldn't be particularly displeased with, with a Lula victory. Um, certainly, you know, Bolsonaro has become a bit of a, sort of a basket case in the international forums. So I think, you know, and then, of course, what we'll see is if the Lula government does come in, the attempts by Biden to, to really woo uh, Brazil to try to see what sort of elements of that sort of policies that were brought in by Bolsonaro that, that benefit US business uh, will be maintained by Lula. Um, so trying to create that sort of pressure other on from the other side for the Lula government, the pressure from the, the regional governments, local governments in South America, particular from the more left-leaning ones, like you mentioned, the newly elected governments or recently elected governments in Colombia and Chile, but there'll also be pressure on the other side from the United States. Well, finally, Fred, could there be a runoff? It's certainly possible. I'm not sure what the latest polls are indicating. Uh, they do note that Lula is in striking distance, uh, but I think a real, a real big part of it will be will, what the mood is, you know, to get as we approach on the election day. Do people, will people feel like we must absolutely get out there and vote for Lula in order to ensure that Lula wins in the first round um, and, and avoid any possibility of Bolsonaro you know, making it into a second round and, and getting a surprise victory. If Lula's campaign is able to, to really maximise that vote, I think they'll, they, they could win in the first round. But if, if they're not able to do that, uh, if the vote is, is dispersed, 
um, and they're not able to get that, that 50%, because there are other candidates running as well. Um, that, that, that should be mentioned. Uh, there isn't just two candidates in, in the first round. And there are others that you know could, could, could easily poll, not, not certainly nowhere near enough to get into the second round. I, I think it's pretty clear that any second round is most likely to, to involve Bolsonaro. But could pull enough votes away from Lula. If people are not that convinced that Lula is, is the, the definitive alternative to, to, or the best alternative to, to Bolsonaro. And then we could see a second round, and, and, and certainly that would then bring in a whole whole lot of new factors into playing in Brazilian politics. I've been speaking with journalist, writer, and author Fred Fuentes about the upcoming Brazilian elections. The single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years. Ningla Ana is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, a gripping first-hand account of an iconic protest action and the young radicals who took control and demanded justice. Rediscover this iconic documentary and a momentous period for First Nations activism in this brand new restoration. Screening Cinema Nova, Carlton, from Friday the 30th of September to Sunday the 2nd of October. A 3CR supporter. I'm speaking now with Peter Murphy, who's a member of the Zimbabwe Information Centre. And Peter was in Zimbabwe about a month ago. My first question to him, it's been a long association with the people of Zimbabwe. How did that begin? I think uh, I'd have to go back to like 1973 or 4 or something like that. You know, there was a, a big anti-apartheid movement in Australia and around the world in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s. We had in, in Australia a remarkable uh, character, um, a woman called Sekai Holland, who was from Zimbabwe and was a you know, one of the few Africans here living in Australia and she was very energetic in the campaign against apartheid in South Africa and Zimbabwe and Namibia. She engaged in uh, the anti-Vietnam war movement. She she had strong links with Aboriginal people. She was a real uh, force of nature and uh, so she lived in Sydney most of the time in the 70s and uh, so I, I came into con- contact with that movement and with her around that time. You know, it wasn't too long uh, before the the fighting, uh, the war in uh, what was then called Rhodesia ended. There was an election and an independent uh, uh, majority black uh, government was in power and she uh, returned to live in Zimbabwe. There was a long period when... Um, we had no no more contact from her, but in the 1990s, so still already a fair while back now, uh, at the end of the 90s, uh, we heard there'd been a bit of a clash between uh, an organisation she led called the Association of Women's Clubs and Mugabe, their president, and uh, Mugabe had tried to seize all of the assets of uh, the Association of Women's Clubs after they got a grant from some British foundation. Sakai led the court case against this and, and won. This was actually turned out to be a sort of a, a one of the important moments in the creation of a strong uh, oppositional movement to Mugabe's real dictatorship. 
1999, Sekai came back to Australia for the first time in like 20 years, asked for her old friends in the anti-apartheid movement to come together to form a support base for the campaign that would be on to uh, defeat Mugabe in, in elections. We formed the Zimbabwe Information Centre in the middle of 1999 for that purpose. We've still got the Zimbabwe Information Centre now. The last 20 years has been a pretty um, wild ride in terms of the struggle of the people in Zimbabwe and right now it's at a pretty bad spot. Not as bad as the as, as last couple of years of Mugabe but uh, a depressing place in a macro sense but I was just able to visit there with another member of the ZIC in uh, August. There was a real positive uh, dynamic going on as well uh, at the grassroots level. There's, there's a lot of people who are organised in one way or another and trying to work together to change the practical conditions of people's lives but also to build uh, a new type of politics in the country which is sorely needed. Just staying with Sekai for a couple of minutes more, she's paid a heavy price for her activism? Yes, you could say that. Uh, she's a very charismatic character um, and really a risk taker uh, when she sees a important thing to do. So she she was one of the founding members of the Movement for Democratic Change in 1999, was a prominent candidate in, in elections and, you know, she uh, was uh, beaten up uh, in one election campaign, had chased along the roads to her home and had to rush inside her house and the people chasing her opened fire. They were um, security forces. So the house was uh, hit with a few bullets, but no one was injured. And then the worst thing happened in 2007, in March. They put together their um, rallies as prayer meetings, and there was a, such a prayer meeting um, in a park in Zimbabwe, in, in Harare. And uh, uh, when the leadership group from MDC came to speak there, um, they were all arrested. There was a... I think 139 altogether. They were all tortured. Sekai was extremely badly injured. Uh, I'm sure that the people were trying to kill her, but she survived it and uh, we were eventually able to get her, you know, to... She was able to get to South Africa and uh, that was with the help of the Australian Embassy there in Harare and then she was able to get to Sydney and get her bones all reset in a hospital in Ashfield. And then she went to the Starts uh, facility in Fairfield, which is a centre for a service for the treatment of torture survivors and their rehabilitation. And uh, they were brilliant. Sekai's recovered enormously uh, from what was really a very, very dangerous spot. I couldn't believe my eyes when she, in 2008, she said, I'm going back to Zimbabwe to stand in the elections. And uh, she she didn't look very good, you know, very haggard. Uh, but she got on the plane and went back and became a senator. There was a standoff. There was a dreadful election in 2008, which, you know, we made an enormous effort to help with here by providing uh, support for her security team, several of whom were killed. And there was a lot of the people killed and displaced in the uh, repression because Mugabe, again, lost the election, but the security group around him refused to allow it to happen. And uh, 
there was going to be a runoff. It was a phony like that claim that uh, at that time Morgan Chungarai, the, the leader of NBC, didn't quite get 50%. So there would have to be a runoff election and the repression in the runoff campaign was so severe that Chungarai just pulled out and said we're not going to sacrifice any more people. This is just an outrage. And all across Africa, um, I think particularly because Sekai had been uh, almost killed and she's a grandmother by then and uh, he really, really deeply offended African culture that this had happened. So the African Union really uh, responded strongly to Mugabe and this uh, so-called government of national unity or shared government was formed in 2009. I was able to visit just just before the new government was formed, and uh, it was a, a curious time then. There was no money; these bills for five trillion dollars were blowing down the street because they were worthless. So the country was at a very low ebb then, and uh, Sekai played a good role as the minister for national reconciliation. That was really a sort of human rights uh, role she was playing, and. Uh, Overall, overall, the country was able to recover a bit, but um, that was sort of, the, I think, the peak of her political, uh, official political achievement. But uh, when the 2013 election came around, Mugabe just massively cheated it in a sort of shockingly brazen way. And it was sort of a, a terrible joke on, on the world, but... Uh, uh, there was no uh, any, any more shared government and uh, the, the sort of wild ride of the economy uh, went on again. The opposition movement completely splintered. By the time of 2018, when another election was due, Morgan Chungarai had died of uh, a cancer and the MDC was split about five ways um, and there was no Mugabe anymore either in power. Yeah, a lot of things have changed and... Uh, uh, Sekai, I think, is uh, from about 2015 declared very clearly she wouldn't be a candidate for any election and she wasn't going to lead any political party in any way and she was uh, re reorganising at the grassroots level for the sort of um, recon reconciled politics that she had been trying to develop as the minister back then in uh, 2009 to 13. Well, who is the government or what is the government now? It's the ZANU-PF government. So it's the same party you know, as Mugabe's party. But because Mugabe was deposed at the end of uh, 2017, it's really a sort of a, a warring group. There is uh, a pro-Mugabe group inside ZANU-PF and there's a pro-Mugabe group outside ZANU-PF and they've got lots of money. The president, uh, Emerson Malangagwa, is... Uh, you know, really quite different from Mugabe, um, despite uh, being associated with all of his, you know, decades of misrule. I think he's not succeeding in changing the political culture enough. So there's a sort of a sense of paralysis at the top in, in Zimbabwe and a reluctance, uh, actually a sort of a, it's a fight over whether or not Zimbabwe should properly re-engage with the international community, you know, according to the standards set by various treaties and uh, agreements in the African Union and, and in the United Nations. Sometimes Manangagwa clearly makes some progress on this front and other times it doesn't happen at all. You know, the country is in uh, arrears with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. It can't really get credit much from any other banks until it fixes that up. 
the government cannot seem to really uh, clearly agree on a strategy to to do that. The economy is is very very poor. Working people are either in the informal sector or uh, paid paid in you know Zimbabwean dollars, which are now suffering about 50% per year inflation, virtually worthless, and uh, a lot of transactions are done in US dollars. Um, even if it's illegal, the country's probably kept alive by the remittances of uh, Zimbabweans working in South Africa and Botswana and and in UK and USA. People in Australia obviously also sending remittances back, but not such a big group here. Yeah, there's still a need for a big change in Zimbabwe and it's still very difficult to see what can happen. Next election is due next year, probably in May, and uh, right now you'd have to say that Manangagwa's group, internally conflicted as it is, uh, will win it because the the possible opposition groups are, are at war with each other too. So there's still like four factions claiming to be uh, the inheritors of the MDC and uh, you know, one of them, led by Nelson Chamisa, is clearly associated with the Mugabe's. Other ones, I think that... Uh, I mean, I would say Nelson Chamisa's group is the stronger of them, um, but it's not united. It's a sort of little petty dictatorship itself. The other ones, are, leaders are not strong enough with the grassroots to really make much of a difference, except that they display great disunity. And uh, in all of this, um, I think uh, we've had the Trump period. Now, Biden doesn't seem to have changed much the US policy in, in Zimbabwe. So you can perceive uh, that the United States, in a sort of covert way, has been destabilizing Manangagwa with sort of dark hand um, programs, creating violent incidents, abductions, things, uh, events which would reflect badly on the government. This this uh, also you know helps to make the internal politics in Zanapia very tortured because clearly you know they're, they're actually under attack from uh, an international direction while trying to re-engage with the international community. So it's very negative in that regard as well. Well, if the country's just about broke and the people are doing it very tough, where do the politicians get their lots of money from? Corruption is the short answer. There's um, a wealth of uh, mineral resources being extracted from Zimbabwe now. So lots of gold, lots of platinum, lots of diamonds. So you know, there's... Uh, there's really a significant money to be made and, and there are some very rich people in Zimbabwe. The way the system works is, is uh, people take a cut. People do uh, favours for each other. People get monopolies and then give kickbacks. So, uh, you know, like the provision of fuel, uh, it's very basic to any economy and if someone's got a monopoly, they're going to make a fortune. They'll only be allowed to do that by the government. That's how it works. It's a cruel, cruel system and uh, completely opaque and uh, undemocratic, so obviously prone to abuse. So, yeah, the mass of the people are really on the margins and yet there is a lot of wealthy people still hanging around there. The food crisis continues? Yes, I would say that you know Zimbabwe uh, has had a bad year for the rains, so the harvest this year is down and will need more uh, imported food and the World Food Program will have to 
it is stepping up its program. So it's in, I think the last figure I saw that they would be providing food for 700,000 people. And we're talking about a population here of 15 million or so. How it's a significant uh, portion of the country that you know, will officially get food aid from overseas. But Zimbabwe is part of uh, an African experience where the war in Ukraine has given a shock to the supply chain of grains that normally came from Ukraine and Russia. So there's many countries facing food shortages, and this is affecting the availability of food for Zimbabwe as well. So uh, one of the things that's going to happen for our little group, the Zimbabwe Information Centre, that we will support a uh, program called Moving Kitchens to help provide food directly to families in distress in uh, parts of Zimbabwe where we've got some grassroots connection. Let's try and finish, Peter, on a positive note. You said that the people you were with while you were there, they were positive. Can you explain why in such situations they feel that way? No, I really cannot. (laughs) I was very impressed. Firstly, I'd say that the, uh, you know, I've told you a long story, you know, going back 25 years or so of the dynamics of the country. Well, all of these people that we met have lived through that. They've seen the high hopes with the movement for democratic change and they've seen the crashing of that uh, opportunity, the real lows of the very, very uh, arbitrary use of power and abuse of power by the government, especially under Mugabe. They're really very clear in their own heads that that, uh, there's another way to work um, and they want a democratic, respectful politics. They've got uh, different structures. You know, we, we, we visited community organizations which, you know, can run clinic, drug program, uh, education support, that sort of thing. Quite, quite uh, impressive, even with poor resourcing. Uh, another project to build housing for people who, who really are struggling even to have shelter. It's called the Peace Village Project. So again, it's, it's against any sectarian this can't just be for Zanu PF people. It just can't be for MDC sort of people. Those sort of political differences have to be uh, buried and everyone should work together to make this possible to have a sustainable residential development for a few thousand people. That we, we see that and, and, of course, the people directly campaigning on human rights like lawyers groups or the trade unions, they've all got a clear vision. You know, maybe it's from a very, very harsh experience, but people have got this resource or reservoir of confidence in themselves, confidence that there's a much better way to work, and they and they they're determined to work that way. So, uh, I think yeah, that was really quite uplifting for me and uh, Graham Chuck, who's the person who came with me there. That's a great place to finish. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for talking me through this, uh, Jan. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au 
We love a good book. The person I'm speaking to next is certainly used to challenges from working with the Green Team in Cuba following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of reciprocal trade between Cuba and the Soviet Union, to cleaning up an island in the Maldives in the Indian Ocean, building a mud brick home and a permaculture garden in Melbourne, then to the northern rivers of New South Wales to work on hemp farming and promoting bamboo. I'm sure I've left a few challenges out, but the next one, even he, the ultimate optimist, hopes to achieve is an enormous task. I'm speaking with Wayne Wadsworth, better known as Wadsy, now living in Port Augusta, South Australia. So Wadsy, you've done a lot over many years for the environment in a number of countries. Last project was in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. Can you recap for those who might have missed your earlier interview, why you thought it was a good idea to leave the lush rivers of Northern New South Wales to give the desert area of South Australia a go? Madness, probably. <laughs> Pretty much had everything I needed, as a bamboo and hemp and rainforest and the last place I was at. But um, you know, I'm sort of, I suppose it's a bit of a last hurrah, having a, having a go at greening the desert. I've never done it before, so I'm on an extremely steep learning curve at the moment. So we're looking to get some land, which is a relatively small piece to start with, and then um, do some magic in it. All right, well, before you... Start all this. You went to a, a conference in Adelaide recently. Can you tell us what that was all about? How that fits in with what you're planning on doing? Yeah, look, uh, we, I went to the Bicar conference actually, and it was in Adelaide, and um, it was quite amazing. Probably about a hundred people there, and some of the, the best Bicar mines in Australia there, and uh, just quite big developed. Sort of been out of the Bicar movement for quite a few years. I've, I've been making it, but not really involved in the, the nuts and bolts of it. Well, can I stop and, you for a second and ask you to yeah. explain what biochar is? Biochar is basically if you put a, a loaf of bread in the in the oven and you forgot about it and you've charred it, it's pretty much the best explanation for biochar. It's, it's any organic material that's heated without oxygen, so it doesn't burn, and then it becomes charcoal, basically. It's a really sexy word for charcoal. And then the great thing with biochar is it's, it's carbon, basically. So if you put that in, if you some fungi and bacteria in it and then put it into the ground and give it plenty of um, organic material to for the fungi and bacteria they convert that to food for plants and so it's quite an amazing product for want of a better word it's used very much by the Indians in the um, in the rainforest in Latin America and they have extremely poor soil because of very uh, leaching so what happens they put biochar into the soil and created what's called terapeutic black soil. Most soils have been good for thousands of years. Someone, an American, went down to rainforest in Latin America some years ago and they did a film on it and uh, they showed some of the soil depth for two or three metres deep of black, black soil. not normally the case in rainforest, though. That's sort of probably where it evolved from in terms of the, the scientific point, but the Americans have done a lot of work on it and Australians are now doing a lot of work on it. It'll be the centrepiece for putting carbon back in the soil, basically. And how does that fit in with what you're planning on doing? Can you explain a bit more about what the big plan is? Yeah, the plan 
the moment is to get a relatively small piece of land, about three acres, and turn that into a, a masterpiece or a, a showcase for bigger projects. So the flying principles like Peter Andrews, contours, you know, building the contours, putting the biochar in the contours, putting organic material in the contours, planting native desert plants in there that have medicinal use, plus the carbon use, and some aquaponics, solar and wind. So it's sort of a mini version of something we can take into, for example, a large Aboriginal community and then look at it doing it on thousands of hectares. This is the sort of size we have to look at to make any difference. So I'm trying to make an example. Some Chinese have green the desert the size of um, size of Denmark, so you know, hundreds of thousands of square miles. So we figured if they could do it, there's no reason why we couldn't. Well, what you're talking about, Peter Andrews, is the climate's greatly different, the, the, the soil's different, everything's different. How are you yep. going to do it? Explain. Well, well, we'll use a lot of Peter Andrews' concepts, the contours, obviously. And the thing with any soil, once you get, you get a lot of organic material back in the soil, you start getting bacteria and fungi in the soil, and that starts converting the soil to more fertility. There's actually a great example of it here, right here in Port Augusta, where they've taken about 200 hectares and made it into a desert park, and that's been, gone from being basically spinifex to trees, and it's quite fantastic. It's a lot of tourists go there, and that's that's only about 20 years old. So, initially, and we're we're fortunate here because they built a pipeline all the way from the Murray River all the way up to um up to the rocket up to the rocket station. So there's access there's access to water, which obviously you don't want to use a lot of it, but you certainly can use that just to get your plants established. And once your plants are established, you know, you have the basis for being there, the basis. And there are some quite amazing plants. There's one particular herb that I came across when I you know, did the tour of the garden the other day. The roots go down about 60 metres. There's some quite amazing plants that have grown naturally in the desert in Australia, and we'd obviously be using those. Um, Saltwood comes to mind quite readily, and saltwood has some lots of medicinal properties, and it pretty much grows anywhere that's Pig face is stuff that grows on the beach, really. Probably even grows on the beach for it. Um, so there's, there's quite a few what we call pioneer plants that we can the herds and things like that. Now, once they get established, then you can bring in your bigger trees, which is what they've done in the desert park here in Port Augusta. So I'll be volunteering some labour there to do a bit of learning and to speak learning first. But I understand most of the principles and basics of life. I just really haven't had an experience in joining the desert. That's a bit of a strong learning curve, really. Yeah, certainly is. So you'll be relying on the local people to educate you as to what needs to be done, or have you got a lot of that information already in your head, as you I, said? The design principles I have in my head, certainly I'll be relying on local people for knowledge of the best plants to use, because you know, obviously that's why I'll be volunteering at the Desert Park, because there's obviously people there who are very experienced, and um, I'm hoping to learn from them. What about the local community, the local Aboriginal community? I think I've asked you this one before. I haven't, as you haven't made contact with the Aboriginal communities here. Um, I'm actually just in the prospect of working with a, a guy who's setting up a project very similar to mine, who's looking at about, I think, 100,000 hectares of Aboriginal land to do a carbon farm. So I'm very keen to um, work with them and go and have a look at their project. And, yeah, so, and he's very, he's a bit older than me, but a very knowledgeable fellow, so he has the knowledge that I don't have. Sure, we we learned a lot, lot from actually going and working in Aboriginal communities and asking Aboriginal people about their own plants and I'm quite sure 
there's the probably steep learning curve in there for me as well. What about um, the land? Have you got the land yet, or you? We're looking at a three-acre block right next to the windmill, uh, the wind farm, and the solid wind farm, and um, Sundrop Farms, which grows tomatoes organically for whole supermarket. So we're looking there because it's pretty much a perfect spot for setting up a demonstration. And the windmill here, the wind farm here, probably has about 500 hectares of land with nothing growing under it. So when we get our shit together, um, we'll be going having a chat to them and seeing about you know, doing some carbon farming in there because they have, they've got obviously those windmills that have a pretty big carbon footprint and they were built. But we, we produce a lot more energy here than we use. Probably the biggest wind solar farm in Australia. Hundred odd mills, hundred odd very large windmills in there, and a big solar solar park. There's a lot more going on at the moment, so you know we will be one of the major suppliers of green energy in Australia. And who is the we? Uh, well, at the moment we is me and a couple of other people. Um, I'm working with a, a woman that's doing some design work for me, and the the guy that's doing the desert project with the Aboriginal people, but. We're at baby steps at the moment, to be honest. We're not, um, you know, we're not all set up. I'm just getting some artwork done for for graphics and things like that, and we're just in the process of setting up a, a web page and all that sort of thing. You know, all those baby steps that you have to in place first and these and business names and and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, once we get all all those sort of things set up, we'll be um, putting out to get some funds to buy the land and then hopefully we'll be making the start next year. The grand plan is to set up a, a model for um, larger projects. So, for example, if we can set up a really good model here, we could take it into Aboriginal communities or farming communities pretty much from here all the way to Darwin. Because part of our, our plan is to have a charge station, you know, like a Tesla charge station where cars can come up charge, and potentially a hydrogen station, but that's obviously down the road a couple of years. But... Um, First baby steps is to get the, the model going and then take that model out into, into the communities, Aboriginal or, or, or white, either either or both. You've talked about biochar. What's biogas and what's biomass? Okay, so biogas is it's very much the same principle as making biocars without oxygen. So the bacteria uh, in biogas start basically can make gas. So the surge... For example, all surge systems use what's called anaerobic breakdown without oxygen, and then they pump, they do the nickel breakdown anaerobically, so it's very smelly and it produces a lot of gas, and they pump oxygen into it to take it, and then they just charge it out for two years later. It's a waste of very good waste of mineral, mineral and um, organic material flushed out to sea. So, what we could do in the heavy surge plant in Australia is actually have a biogas plant to make liquid fuel or to generate green electricity from the from the sewage treatment plant. So by it, we'll be putting a small biogas system into the project. If if we turn the shit into fertiliser, we'll actually mix that with our biochar, which gets, has all the bacteria and the fungi and the nutrients in it, put that biochar into the soil, underneath the soil, and that lays that, that, that lays the basis for the plants to grow a lot more faster obviously and and to create the bacteria and fungi that we need in the soil to help those plants grow. There's basically two ways of growing plants is that you do it chemically as a, you know, 90% of agriculture or major agriculture in the world is done chemically. So you get nitrogen, phosphorus and NPK and you put some of your cones on per hectare and liming and that system to feed the plants. Uh, and eventually that destroys all the 
bacteria and fungi in the soil, so you wind up with dead soil and, you know, and you get desertification, which is what's happening in Australia on a pretty large scale. The, the alternative is to do it organically, so you're putting biochar and bacteria in the soil and then feeding that bacteria, which converts the carbon to food for plants. I mean, traditionally, 200 years ago, everything was grown organically. We didn't have chemical fertilizers, so we used horse manure and primate used human manure um, quite successfully hundreds of years. It's only been the last years really where we've had very heavy dependence on chemical farming, petrochemical farming. So unless we go back, and I'm not saying we have to go back to the way it was second value, you know, it's just not going to work, but certainly we can use the practice and machinery that we have to convert back to organic farming. I mean, look, Cuba did it. I mean, in 1990, Cuba didn't have, man completely ran out of um, fertiliser and they converted to organic farming in, in less than two years. Went from 95% chemical farming to 95% organic farming. So, so there, there is an, a model out there that, that was quite successful and, and they were under a blockade as well. So I'm sure if Cuba could do it under a blockade in the most powerful country in the world. Um, Australia was in the friends of the most powerful country in the world could do it as well. Well, these plants that you're going to use, what are they going to produce? Uh, well, initially we'll be doing a lot of desert plants, um, saltbush, for example. Um, from that we would make, make some biochar from it and use it as an organic material for bacteria and fungi and that. And then we'll be planting different types of trees, even things like olives, for example, grow quite well here with a little bit of water. Have deep roots. We'll be certainly growing things like cacti to make alcohol. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but the um, tequila is actually made from a cacti, which actually grows quite well here. I'll be certainly look, looking at that for making alcohol. You know, obviously, people like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, so we can't go marijuana here, but we can have alcohol. What about medicinal? Ah, uh, yeah, and actually, funny you mentioned that, I just actually got a book from the desert park the other day with a lot of desert medicinal plants in them. So, yes, we certainly will be planting medicinal plants. And we will be planting hemp, but um, and that will be used probably, you know, medicinally as well. We can mix the hemp with some desert medicine and probably make some pretty good medicine, I think. It sounds as though you're fitting in pretty well, what's it? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting to sort of... I'm getting to meet people, and I didn't really know anyone when I got here. So, as I said, it's been a pretty major change and late in, late in my life. Not getting any, I'm not wearing chicken anymore. When I went to Cuba, I had probably a bit more energy. I've probably got a bit more knowledge now and hopefully a little bit wiser. And you need people to help you, funding-wise. We will, yeah, yeah. No, you know, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, you build the Taj Mahal and people come. So once we get a little piece of land and we've got a project in them, people no doubt will come. You're pretty enthused about what, you get out of all this. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, the great thing about Port Augusta is a lot of the stuff's already here, like, you know, there's a great huge winning solar farm, there's sundrop farms who are desalinating salt water and making tomatoes for coal supermarket. There's a council that's fairly, well, obviously pro, very pro green development here. The mayor, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, she was a, a big mover and shaker in getting green technology into this area, so the Labor Party's in power in South Australia and they're very pro-green power, so the things 
perspective on it. Look, the problem is in New South Wales and, and Victoria, for that matter, you, you have to get through a, a heck of a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of the things that, that, that they have already been done, so I don't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel. I'm talking to things that already exist. That makes life a lot easier. I mean, we were trying to do a pyrolysis plant in Byron Bay for quite a few years and you know, it was a nightmare to have <laughs> And it, it never happened. I mean, we sort of take a lot of effort into it for another two years where we can get past council and all the opposition from the Greenies and all the government and stuff to deal with them. I also am hoping things will be a little easier here. Um, we'll have a website up and running uh, in about a fortnight, and it'll be Green Desert Projects, GDP. It'll be greendesertprojects.com. Maybe have a chat with you in two or three weeks' time, and we'll, when the website's up, and we'll, um, I'll give you an update. Good on. Okay, we'll look after yourself. All right, thanks very much, Dan, and uh, all the best to 3CR. And, of course, Wadsy or Wayne Wadsworth was a programmer here at 3CR many years ago. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Thank you, 3CR. We love you. My next guest is the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, a monthly contributor to Tuesday Home Time. And today, Bob Phelps, we're looking first at the GM Free True Food Guide. Now, if I'm right, I can remember a few years ago that it was put out at a regular basis. Is that right that we haven't seen it for a while or is it I just missed it? No, no, we did go a bit quiet. I think the last one was done in 2017. We're looking at products, food products, that label themselves as GM-free, not containing any ingredients that have been genetically engineered. We're trying to revitalise that. It became very complicated to get the information that was needed, but now that a significant number of of products have got the label GM-free on them anyway, we're simply going to create a website which posts all that we can find, and we think that will build a constituency for buying that kind of food and also encourage uh, the producers to start being more careful about what ingredients they put into their uh, foods because the new uh, genome editing technologies which came online in 2012 and have now started to produce food products as well, uh, they will not probably be uh, regulated or labelled. For SANS hasn't Food Stands Australia and New Zealand hasn't yet finally decided what is going to happen uh, with these new foods, which have got some questionable research findings behind them and no history of safe use. But Food Standards is taking the view that uh, a lot of uh, the genetically manipulated foods uh, won't need regulation or labelling, and uh, therefore it's important that people have access to the information about the alternatives particularly the organic uh, alternatives that are guaranteed GM-free. Well, the ones that are labelled GM-free, how difficult is it to find them? 
I mean, the problem there is that uh, because of the exemptions in the existing food standard, things like refined starches, vegetable oils and sugars may be genetically engineered, but you wouldn't know it because they're not required to carry a label. So in the globalised food industry, we can have the products of soybean or corn, uh, high fructose corn syrup, for instance, coming in from overseas, particularly from North America, either in products or as a raw material to be included uh, in foods produced here. And uh, there will be no way of knowing it. An interesting sidelight to that is that um, as a result of a, a decision that the Obama administration in the USA made some five years ago now, very shortly a lot of foods in the USA uh, that's processed for foods will be required to carry um, a logo which says bioengineered. So we're going to be very interested to see how that goes and whether that alerts uh, shoppers. There is also a very good GM-free labelling program in the USA as well, which has got thousands of products on its website, and it has been highly successful. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to regenerate the GM-free True Food Guide uh, here in Australia to help shoppers decide what it's good to buy or not buy. And there are safety questions, of course, all mixed up in this. Companies are also attempting to hide their genetically manipulated ingredients. For example, the new Impossible Burger, which is uh, a plant-based burger, contains uh, a product that is the product of genetically manipulated yeast, and it's included to give the appearance and texture of bloody meat so that the, the person who's eating it thinks they're actually eating um, an animal rather than uh, a plant-based product. It uh, apparently emulates it quite well, but uh, in the rat studies that were conducted, there were some really dodgy concerns about the impact of that product long-term. And so uh, although it's included in those uh, new plant-based burgers at 0.8% so that it doesn't have to be labelled, we think that it's important that uh, products like that are outed and that uh, people have a choice, have, a, have a, the information needed when they're shopping to make a, uh, a good decision. So the GM Free True Food Guide, look out for it. It should be online early next year and we'll be uh, doing a generic version which can be posted on multiple websites and we'll in be inviting other kindred groups to uh, put it up there as well. Talking with the activists in New Zealand, do they have the same problems that you have here in Australia to get that information? Well, some of the same, and in fact we're doing a joint project. This is uh, both an Australian and New Zealand uh, guide because, of course, as a, a bigger producer and a bigger market, uh, a lot of Australian product goes to New Zealand under the free trade agreement. And it's the reason that we have a free trade agreement across the Tasman that uh, the food in both countries is, um, is regulated or not regulated in most cases by Food Standards Australia New Zealand. They make the policy and then they inform the health ministers of New Zealand, the state governments and the federal government in Australia who are given the responsibility of seeking to implement and enforce those uh, food rules in their own jurisdictions. 
So it's a messy setup, but I think uh, working with the New Zealanders is uh, always good, and I think that the new guide will be uh, useful in both in both constituencies, and that we'll see that once there's a uh, a body of uh, shopper interest and support for the GM-free products, I think it will encourage other food producers to uh, embrace that uh, labelling badge and to um, to abide by the uh, more than the food standards rules, which are very, very weak and low. And as I said, most of the genetically manipulated food ingredients are not labelled uh, as a result of all the exemptions. Another example, for instance, which has contemporary relevance is that um, animals fed genetically manipulated feed, whether it's soybean, corn, cotton or uh, canola, their products, whether it's eggs, meat and milk, uh, do not require any labelling either. And yet there are, in the media this week, serious issues raised about animals going to slaughter, which are um, really sick animals, and you do have to ask why and why the authorities are allowing that to happen. So for meat eaters, I'd be looking out for some improvement in standards and abattoirs as well as far as the health of the animals is concerned. Do we really want to be eating very seriously sick animals if indeed we're a meat eater? I don't think so. I just wonder also with people who eat fish, how many of those people know that the fish that they are eating comes from a fish farm and the problems inherent in that? Well, yes, that's a very big question. Of course, the Tasmanians, who have got uh, a number of fish farms there, now all foreign-owned, they have been, uh, including Bob Brown and his foundation and uh, another uh, group called Neighbours of Fish Farms, have been trying to raise these issues. But they're pretty local rather than being on a national level where they should be because, of course, yes, the salmon that are produced in the and, and tuna that are produced in those farms are exported to the mainland and overseas. The conditions in which the uh, fish live are really pretty appalling and the impacts on the uh, sea environments there are very horrendous as well. So there are issues. Of course, genetically manipulated uh, salmon may be on the horizon as well because there is, a, is now a... Uh, a genetically engineered salmon being farmed in the USA that uh, grows a lot faster and bigger than their native relatives, North Atlantic salmon, and the the impacts, potential impacts on the native relatives, those North Atlantic salmon living out in the ocean, is projected to be pretty awful if there uh, are escapees from the fish farms. No modelling or work has yet been done on what would happen if we had genetically manipulated fish in Tasmanian farms as well, but you do wonder what a, an invasive species like that uh, would do if it was released into um, the seas around Tasmania. There are some big questions there. Fortunately, the laws of Tasmania at the moment uh, prohibit the growing of any genetically manipulated crops and so uh, land-based agriculture is, is pretty clear. But what will the government's position be on fish farming? We don't know. 
and would they give way to those foreign-owned corporations that now own all of the uh, fish farms in Tasmania? That's um, a question that's got to be raised as well. So what could the consequences be if it escaped from those farms if they did become GM? They'll be engineered to grow much more quickly and bigger, so the impacts in the North Atlantic are clear enough. They would outcompete uh, the uh, native varieties of the fish. What the impacts in a place like Tasmania would be, I don't know whether they would make significantly larger demands on the stock of uh, kelp and other seafoods that are available there, to what extent they would disrupt the aquatic ecosystems by out-competing other fish and other um, inhabitants of the oceans. Uh, That's really an open question, but it's a question that would need to be answered, I think, before those uh, fish came there. Our region is being intruded on. Um, The... uh, A Japanese company is approving genetically manipulated brim, tilopia, and I believe that those fish are going to start to be farmed in Indonesia sometime soon, so that will raise issues around our coast as well, potentially. And we've just come back from driving to Adelaide, and one thing you notice, you can't help but notice, is the number of canola farms both in Victoria and South Australia. What's the concern in South Australia? Yes, a lot of people are growing canola. You're right, the price has been excessive. I mean, at one point last year, it was in excess of $1,000 a tonne, which is more than double what the price in the past historically has been. So everybody's been rushing to grow the the crop. Most of our canola is demanded uh, as a biofuel feedstock in Europe where um, because most of it's not genetically engineered, uh, it has ready access to the European market and also uh, can be sold at a premium. Uh, So people have been embracing that. But of course, the non-GM, the the, sorry, the genetically manipulated canola, the one that tolerates being sprayed with uh, either Roundup or the Bayer product Liberty herbicide, are now allowed in South Australia as well and it's now the second season for the growing of the genetically manipulated canola in South Australia. So you will have seen canola fields. You won't have known whether they're GM or non-GM canola. But um, one of the things that's encouraging farmers to go for the uh, GM varieties is that uh, Viterra, which is the main grain handler and marketing for grains in South Australia uh, has just recently introduced a new system where it's going easy on those bringing genetically manipulated canola to their silos. So um, in Western Australia, which has had these uh, segregations of GM and non-GM for quite a long time, they're very, very strict indeed. So if you get any contamination in your non-GM canola, it goes in the GM bin. They're very jealous of their good reputation because that very valuable market in Europe for the biofuel production could easily be lost if there were a major contamination event. Uh, but in South Australia, they are now, it seems, uh, easing the binning requirements. So if you're 
just a little bit over as far as your content of GM canola contamination is concerned, Viterra will um, bend the rules a little bit and upgrade your crop to a non-GM because, of course, at the silo, they're also paying a premium uh, for that export market. And that premium uh, has been very valuable for the non-GM growers now for years. It's been up to $100 a tonne generally running around $30 a tonne at the moment. But when you consider that uh, as well as getting more at the uh, silo, the GM growers have to pay a technology fee for the seed for their crop. They're not allowed to save the seed for planting next year. There are additional segregation and transport costs as well. So in fact, the the deal for genetically modified uh, canola has not been that inspiring, uh, but with this uh, change of the rules, uh, Viterra is massaging the situation a bit, and it'll be interesting to see whether in this second season uh, they manage to uh, gradually increase the amount of uh, GM canola that is being planted. They claim it's up around 30% uh, this year from 23% uh, the previous season. So that's what happened in the other states as well. There was a bit of an increase for the first couple of years, but uh, in the long run, it's pretty much declined. And most farmers in Australia continue to produce and profit from the non-GM canola varieties, which can be easily sold at premium prices into Europe. And uh, the situation in Europe is that because of their uh, stringent rules, the canola goes into biofuel production and then whatever's left over can be put into the animal feed supply, whereas if it was genetically manipulated, it would have to be either disposed of or re-exported out of the European Union. So there's a little complexity there, but we hope that the industry does the right thing and uh, continues to favour the growing of canola that doesn't allow farmers to overspray it with either Roundup or Liberty, uh, putting more synthetic chemicals into the environment and incidentally into our food supply. Just the fact though, the amount of canola that's grown and the, I'd say, it's smaller percentage that actually goes into making oil, rapeseed oil is it? And we have this... Oh yeah. Well. Yeah, we have these huge paddocks, I mean they're miles and miles and if that's going yes. into feeding animals, well, there's your conundrum, isn't it, where it should be going just to humans, not feeding humans well, through animals. Yes. <laughs> yes, but that's what the, uh, the so-called food industry is about these days, using new technologies like synthetic biology and um, fermentation in uh, factories, biomaterials production, all of these industrial demands on the food supply uh, mean that a, a lot of the food that's produced, particularly grain, is not going anywhere near the human food supply at all. So although there's been a global shortage of food, you see that uh, the you know much of the production is going into industrial purpose like biofuels and and other uh, industrial purposes. Um, 
you know, feeding people is not really the business of industry. It's um, it's seen as maximising profit and uh, sending your product wherever it's going to be the most profitable. And, uh, you know, canola is just um, one of many, many examples where this is happening. And it's it's a great shame. Of course, the feeding of animals themselves is is really an unproductive activity. It's uh, very labour and energy intensive. And this is why so many people now are becoming vegetarians, having a better diet and uh, improving their health and also, incidentally, helping to save the planet. So, yes, canola is just one example of the industrialisation of the food supply uh, that is not in the public interest. Another concerning issue is trying to reinvent or de-extinction the Tasmanian tiger. And you think, well, if they managed to do that after God knows how many years, how would the tiger survive here? Because most of its habitat has been destroyed. Yes, well, um, some people agree with you, certainly those who have got a... Um, a conservation bent and understand that we've got something like a million species on the brink of extinction right now and yet people are pouring money and expertise into trying to bring back animals that have been extinct for some time. And you mentioned the Tasmanian tiger or the thylacine as a specific example. Of course, uh, the Tasmanian tiger was hunted to extinction and the last um, animal died in captivity in Tasmania in 1936. It was falsely accused of killing sheep, and of course farmers were given uh, a field day, as they had been with uh, indigenous human beings in Australia, to go out and shoot them. As a result, the, the Tasmanian tiger went extinct, and now we've got the boffins in Melbourne University who have been working for more than a decade on trying to use uh, genome editing to get some of the DNA out of some of the samples that remain of the Tasmanian tiger and recreate the animal. The reason it was in the news recently is that um, a a US-based biotech company called Colossal Biosciences, great name, (laughs) are investing $10 million into the University of Melbourne project and they aim to help quote, to bring back the thylacine into its natural environment in Tasmania. And it sounds very noble, of course, but for the very reason that you mentioned, the fact that the Tasmanian environment uh, has been modified with dams, deforestation, agriculture, towns and cities, hugely since the 1930s, the chances of producing animals that could actually re-inhabit the environment probably next to zero, and the genetic diversity of any animals that were produced would also prohibit the species being revived in any serious way because you need genetic diversity. Another thorny question is, if you managed to create an embryo, what animal would you choose to uh, actually carry what is uh, a marsupial? The Tasmanian tiger is a marsupial. What are you going to get a possum or a um, a wallaby or some other animal to gestate the um, the new resurrected animals? Uh, it's all very complicated and odd, really. But it's great headlines. I guess the researchers get um, 
kudos out of pursuing this relentlessly, even though it's really against the public interest. And if they do manage to succeed, one or two animals for a display in zoos is likely to be the upshot. I mean, you really have to ask why Colossal Biosciences would put $10 million of its investors' money into such a project. And it's PR, it's commercial advantage rather than any realistic um, hope of, of, um, of this. And, of course, the mammoth, which uh, has been extinct for much longer, the tusked elephant-like critter that used to be in the uh, Siberian wilderness, uh, is another object of de-extinction research. There are others. It's a, it's a whole movement of people who uh, really want to live in the past and not attend to the present, which is that we're confronted with most of the animals and plants that we inhabit the earth with going extinct. And uh, if we lose that biodiversity, then we might go extinct as well. And that, of course, is why the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity was passed and uh, why a lot of nations are working somewhat diligently to try to maintain their natural environment and the diversity that's in it. But, of course, uh, very interestingly, in um, places like Brazil, you've got Bolsonaro chopping down the Amazon. There is going to be an election there shortly. And uh, a large group of indigenous women are standing a bit like the independents here in Australia, opposing the re-election of Bolsonaro, uh, because that's their environment, that's their living space, uh, that's where their forebears are from, is the Amazon. It's being destroyed around them. So it's going to be interesting, too, to see how the politics of de-extinction, as opposed to uh, rescuing the present environment, and all the plants and animals that inhabit it with human beings, how that actually plays out. We can only hope that the uh, extinction dies a natural death, that we forget about the things, the, the damage that we've already done, and get on with trying to uh, rescue the present. Let's finish off, Bob, by going to England, and a new group has formed. What's this one about? Yes, it's calling itself Stop Designer Babies. And it arises out of something that's very relevant to Australia as well. You know that we had the big argument, um, which we talked about on this show, about the mitochondrial donation bill. Well, the UK uh, in 2015 had approved mitochondrial replacement research. And uh, because of the secrecy, we don't know how far it has progressed. But what's become evident is that as a result of the debate about that, that heritable human genome engineering, genome editing is now on the political agenda in the United Kingdom. So it's a direct link back to this mitochondrial research and the proponents of allowing human beings to be modified in quite substantial and serious ways for a variety of purposes is, is becoming a public debate. Uh, a recent report, for instance, by the UK and German military is talking about the augmentation of human beings for battlefield situations to make their warriors uh, more able to fight wars. Here in Australia, we haven't had such a bait at all, but we should because 
the mitochondrial research, which will begin probably early next year as a result of the law here changing, and $15 million, uh, the initial investment of the federal government into the mitochondrial research. I imagine that sometime soon, the genetic manipulation of human beings, which can be inherited by future generations, uh, is going to be on the political agenda in Australia as well. Unfortunately, what we saw was that the Greens and other progressive elements in the Parliament backed the mitochondrial bill, and uh, that's a concern in itself that people who are optimists about technology are prepared to say, yes, let's let's the uh, IVF industry and and others have a go at changing human beings. But we've seen over the last two centuries what's happened with eugenics where human selection and uh, genocide have been result of uh, these kinds of visions of making human beings better in order to serve different purposes. It's a debate that we've got to have. It hasn't been held and we now have a law in place which is going to facilitate that and uh, I think that Therefore, something like stop designer babies might be a good idea for a, uh, a movement in Australia as well. Uh, it's certainly starting to get legs in the UK because of the debate that's going on there. Uh, and we need to have this conversation as well before we allow uh, the genome editing of human beings for purposes which are pretty suspect in many cases. Radio Bob, well, there'll be plenty to talk about in a month's time. Splendid. Thanks very much indeed, Jan. And Bob Phelps is the founder and the executive director of the Gene Ethics Network. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bomb supply on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. The Solomon Islands have come in for a huge amount of attention this year from the US and Australia as they pump up the alleged threat of China in the Pacific But there is another part of the Solomon Islands, the Northern Solomons, known now as Bougainville. Now waiting for full independence from PNG after a referendum in 2019 resulted in 97.7% of the population favouring independence. Today I welcome back to Tuesday Home Time long-time activist for Bougainville independence, Vicky John. Vicky, people talk to the struggle for independence was the Panguna Mine, now closed since the late 1980s. But in 2022, communities around Rio Tinto's closed copper mine faced a serious threat of flooding. Why is this? 
definitely because of the mine waste that's been poured straight into the Jabba and uh, Carawong rivers, the mine waste from the Panguna mine, the poisonous tailings. And over years, and particularly when it rains, it causes massive chaos. So basically the rivers are so silted up with poisonous tailings um, that they've increased in size, intensity, and have widened. So, and also like streams that flow, that would normally flow normally are now blocked, causing flooding and new swamp land. So it's all due to the, the mine waste from the Panguna mine that's been shut since 1989. Does it get worse each year? Is that what happens? Yes, it certainly seems that way. I mean, the uh, recent report, that has been one of the main issues So the rapid risk concerns are actually that there's possibility of a potential collapse of the tailings levy and possible flooding. So according to the traditional landowner that led the complaint in the human rights complaint, the Enola Roka Matbop, who's also a member of parliament, he said that the report that's just come out shows the world just some of what we live with every day. Every day we worry about the levees collapsing on us, about rivers full of mine waste flooding our land and villages, and about whether the water we drink and wash with is making us sick. So the the, the report, whilst it has brought this all to life, has basically been known for a long, long time. You know, we congratulate the Human Rights Law Centre for, you know, you know, getting this un you know, getting this underway and committing, you know, and Rio Tinto committing to funding this full assessment. But Rio Tinto at this stage hasn't committed to funding any solutions to any mine-related risks or impacts identified in this report. Yeah, well, it's all very well having a risk assessment and showing what it does, but if the, if the person, people concerned aren't going to do anything about it, what can be done? Well, this is where Rio Tinto really got to come to the fore they say they have, you know, care about, you know, the environment and their social responsibility. This is time where they could actually, you know, do something positive instead of, you know, forever avoiding what really is their responsibility. I mean, basically, you know, when the mine was operating, there was over a billion tonnes of um, poisonous tailings from the mine that were going straight into the river system, the Jabba River and the Karawong River. Yeah, with all this mine waste and, you know, it's just, it's just a polluted mess. It's a, it's environmental devastation. It's, it's just shocking. It's so toxic. No one, you know, how are people supposed to survive? And the other thing is, I got, like that, all that waste went from the mining pit, Panguna, right, leaving a trail of destruction right down the Jabba River, which is like 35 kilometers away to the sea. So years ago, when, when the mine first operated or started, you know, commercially, you know, commercial production back in 1972, they had a couple of choices to be, you know, more concerned about the environment, like the choices being, you know, a tailings dam, which would have contained all the waste, but the mining company basically said, we're not going to do that because of seismic activity. And the other option was to build a pipeline that went from the mining pit right down to the Augusta Bay to the sea, 
and they didn't do that either because it was too technical and too expensive. So, you know, all this cost-cutting, they did not give a damn about the pristine rivers that used to live, you know, used to be on Bougainville. They did not give a damn about the people who lived on Bougainville. It was all about money. I think again, back to Rio Tinto, it's time for them to, you know, wake up to their environmental devastation that they've done to the people of Bougainville and rectify it. That's what they can do if they were decent, if they were a decent company. We just have to wait and see. Their argument basically is, I mean, they're basically saying that, you know, they adhered, you know, adhered to the laws at the time, PNG laws, so they, they don't feel responsible. They haven't got a good record in other countries as well, have they? No, they're, they're all over the planet. They, they've got a very bad reputation and, of course, uh, most people would have heard of what they recently did over in Western Australia to our Indigenous people, our First Nations people. The uh, 40,000-year site at the Dugan Gorge where they just blew it up uh, without any respect for our First Nations people and also the archaeologists who were in that area at the time saying don't do it. So, you know, their reputation is pretty shocking. Well, you've got a situation there now, yet you've got people saying, well, we want the mine to be reopened. You can't have one unless the other's fixed up. Well, yes, that's the whole contention now. Um, I must admit I was totally surprised when that news came out that five out of the seven landowner groups around the Panguna mine voted to reopen the mine. And like you, how do you, how do you reopen the mine when there's all the, all this devastation that needs to be rectified now? How can you reopen the mine again knowing that hasn't been fixed yet? Bougainville still hasn't got her independence. And again, like to reconstruct the Panguna mine is going to take many years and going to cost billions of dollars. Who's going to come forward with that money? Will it reopen again could be the other question. I don't know. But I think maybe in the background is Rio, Rio Tinto waiting in the wings to be re-invited back to Bougainville. There's an issue about the Bougainville Copper Limited shares. The Rio Tinto divested its shares back in 2016 and gave the shareholdings to the Bougainville government and the Papua New Guinea government. You know, there's a lot of issues there that still haven't haven't been resolved. So I, yeah, I, I can't see that mine opening for a very long time. Well, the important thing that's got to be resolved, Vicky, is the health, the health of the people and the health of the environment. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's twenty thousand people living down the Jabba River from the mine pit. You know, they have a right to live. They have a right to have clean water. They have a right you know, to stop the, you know, to get this rectified, the leaching of the copper contamination. The area, you know, on the Jabba River, it looks like a moonscape. The mine waste gets worse and worse, particularly when it rains. You cannot do this to people. You know, this wouldn't be happening if that mine hadn't been operating in the first place. And as I said, they left there in 2016. They did not give a damn. And it seems to me at this stage, whilst they're paying for this, you know, assessment of Panguna, they're not really saying that they're going to pay for any um, remediation. Once this 
full report comes out and says, yes, you're, you're guilty, you, you must fix up, you know, the tailings levy, you know, stop this potential flooding, etc. They could turn around and say, why should we? Well, how easy or hard will it be to do that? Because you're in a part of the world where it's monsoonal rain. I could imagine what it must be like yep. there at certain times of the year. Yes, it'd be terrible. I think the thing is too, it's the, the recent report reinforces the devastating environmental legacy of the Panguna mine and the dangerous volatile situation that it's left on the local communities living in the area. You know, fishing rights uh, or fishing areas, uh, water, is it clean to wash in that, you know, is it okay to wash in that water? Is it okay to drink that water? It's, it's terrible. It's just awful. But over the coming weeks, the Tetra Tech coffee team who are assessing the damages, they've done it by satellite, but they're on the ground now to, to identify, you know, what options are necessary to address all these serious risks to the people and their livelihoods. So I, I'm assuming that report, which does, it's sort of fast-tracking part of the main um, impact assessment report is being fast-tracked because of this potential collapse of the tailings levy and possible flooding. So they're on the ground now, as far as I'm aware, to look at this un unstable infrastructure at the mine pit, its levees, etc., erosion of waste into the rivers and flooding downstream, identifying problems with access to clean water for drinking and bathing, and identifying potentially affected communities. So this is part one or phase one of this report. Then there'll be a phase two once that report comes in, which will be the tender process to select a third party to conduct a full impact assessment. And then the full impact assessment is due to commence on the ground this year. So that will be another report. So. I've also read that that's going to take about 18 months to get that report. So there is another part of the waiting game. Like it's all very fine having reports. We need that evidence, you know, to go further. But in the meantime, the people are still going to be suffering on the ground, particularly, you know, down the Jabba River from that the Panguna mine in Bougainville. Can't just relocate people, can you? I mean, that's their home, and you can't say, oh, well, you can go and live up the river a couple of hundred miles and you'll be fine, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And it's also, you know, the, the, the land is also used for their, you know, their gardens and for their, for their food. And so, you know, what's going to happen in that department? You can't kind of pick up your crops either and, and take them somewhere else if it's going to flood. So, yes, there's lots of, lots of issues to be addressed. And, but we're at a starting point, I guess. But for me, it's just gone on and on and on. It's just, it's just one of those things that it's like, why is this so drawn out? Why is this taking so long? And why is Rio Tinto still getting away with this? Well, let's turn to PNG for a couple of minutes, Vicky. The Prime Minister, James Marape, has been re-elected. Is Bougainville independence an issue for him? It definitely is. We also have been notified, also I found out on the 1st of September, that we now also have a new Minister for Bougainville Affairs, the Honourable Manasseh Makiba. 
the people of Bougainville and the government of Bougainville have welcomed the appointment of um, Mr. Makiba as the Bougainville Affairs uh, Minister. But um, I think the important, or it's, it's a very crucial time for Bougainville and Papua New Guinea, you know, being now the 11th national parliament, it's a crucial time in the sense that they need to prepare to ratify the outcome of the 97.7% of Bougainvillians who opted for political independence during the 2019 referendum. The ratification process is clearly defined in the Bougainville Peace Agreement. There is no deviating from that those provisions. And so we want to see, again, as soon as possible, that Bougainville gets her just rightly independent. So we're hoping that James Marape, you know, congratulations to him too on becoming the PNG Prime Minister again. Um, he has been working solidly with um, the current Minister of Prime, uh, President of Bougainville, Ishmael Tororama, but they've got to stay on track. Sort of like, in one, in one way he'll say, James Marape will say, PNG Parliament is the ultimate authority to decide on the issue of independence under the PNG Constitution. But on the other hand, he's saying he doesn't want to let Bougainville go. We're still at that phase. But, you know, as I said, the Bougainville President Ishmael Tororama is really pushing to make sure the PNG Parliament stays on track to give Bougainville her independence. I have noted also that some of the other PNG parliamentarians have said 97.7%, you know, Papua New Guinea, you've got to get real about the rights of the Bougainville people. How can you deny that they should not have their access, uh, their independence when 97.7% want independence? So, you know, there are uh, parliamentarians from Papua New Guinea who are on side with Bougainville, but I think it all comes down to the PNG constitution, basically, and the whole of the government of Papua New Guinea to say, yep, give Bougainville her independence. And I'd imagine that people on Bougainville, whether they're older or younger, are pretty restless at the moment. We've waited all this time, and yet it's been strung out and strung out. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it's just so unfair, and it's unkind, and it's... What is the real reason? Is it, is it Has Australia got something to do with this? Has the mining company got something to do with this? There, you know, there are issues with regard to the BCL shares. So, I don't know, it's very hard for me to put my finger on the real reason as to why they're stopping Bougainville for having her, in, her independence. They are saying at some point, maybe, you know, Bougainville's economy and reaching her fiscal self-reliance should be sorted prior to independence. I know there's that argument, but no, I don't. I, that's not my argument. I think it's time that they ratified, you know, the outcome of the 97.7% of Bougainvilleans who have opted for political independence. And you wonder where, in the minds of the Australian government and maybe the US government, the fact that where Bougainville is situated on the edge of the Pacific, the China bogeyman. Oh, yeah, the China, with China and the Solomon Islands. Yeah. Um, there could be that. They could be that aspect as well. Um, I know that the Australian government has um, that naval base in Papua New Guinea, you know, revamping that and uh, as a strategic post in case 
something does happen between China and the US. But it's very hard to say, Jan, but you, it, you could be on the right track. Maybe it has got something to do with that. Okay, Vicky, we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see about this new assessment. Yes, we'll have to wait and see, and yeah, and then the next full assessment, you know, will, that's due to commence on the ground this year, and apparently the outcome won't be known for 18 months, so yeah, there's something else. We'll see what happens next. And I've been speaking with Vicky John from the Bougainville Freedom Movement, and we'll hear more, I'm sure, in coming weeks. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.